I think most Americans, when they hear the platitudes that are thrown around in our politics around policing, whether it's back the blue or defund the police, most people have way more complex views of police than those two slogans. And that was a sentiment that, would, that as he expressed it, got clear bipartisan support in that chamber. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, you were just telling me offline a rather fascinating celebrity encounter that you just had. Yeah, um, this was over the weekend. I saw Sarah Jessica Parker out and about in the city. And those who have heard, I am one of the very few people who actually is a fan of the reboot of Sex in the City. It was like my favorite show before I moved here, watched everything, binged everything. I'm kind of manifesting my Carrie Bradshaw life here as a journalist in New York. And I ran into her and I was like, this is my moment to get an interview. And so I said, I'm with the New York Post and and I know that the show's coming out, the new the second season, would you want to do an interview? And she said, yeah. And so we're doing a long form in her descriptor, intimate interview, which is very oh exciting for me. And so you just... When you see her and she just agrees on the spot, how do you follow up? Did she give you her number? No, I'm emailing her PR people. Oh, amazing. Yeah, well, I had my exciting. little post press pass. So, you know, I get the the New York Post uh, credits. And yeah, it was it's exciting for me. It's very dorky. I know it's very basic of me, but I am um, quite a big fan of hers. So I'm, I'm glad that I was kind of obnoxious and, and gritty, but she seemed to have um, not minded. So. How do you feel about the the reboot phenomenon generally? I'm not hugely a fan of reboots in general. I I found it to be interesting though, like given how you have these woke, politically correct oh, new tides. Where's the wokeness coming in? Why does woke the show? have to do with the reboots? Oh, in Sex in the City. The second the second oh. show is like very woke and very and dealing with like the woke pressures in Hollywood, and it was interesting just to watch. So I don't know. I, as someone who was a fan of the first one, I appreciate the second one. They're making Got the it. second season now. So yeah. I know I'm very, it's an, it's an unpopular opinion, but you know, well, I'll stand I, by it. The Gilmore Girls reboot was awesome. I thought the Karate I never Kid saw one, the original or the Karate reboot. Kid was great. That Although you, you probably, it doesn't mean much to you because you weren't around in the 90s and 80s. Uh, and then Night Court, which definitely means nothing to you. They just rebooted that no, and it did really no idea. well. It was really awesome. It was like a show from the early 90s. Well, okay. Enough about that. Enough about Pop Culture Corner for us. We've got some announcements. We've got The Hardest Step with their second episode out. Desmond Mead, uh, a good friend of mine and a real hero who's been fighting to restore rights of convicted felons in Florida to vote. Uh, that's an amazing episode. We also have an episode of Regressives dropping. Oh, and by the way, you can get that on The Hardest Step wherever you get your podcasts, uh, Apple, Spotify, etc. The Hardest Step. You also, uh, this Sunday, we're going to be having an episode interview with Benjamin Applebaum from the New York Times to talk all about housing and housing supply and how we fix this housing crisis we have in this country. And we have our voicemail, 321-200-0570, 321-200-0570. Keep sending us voicemails. I think this might have been a record 24 or 48-hour period of voicemails, and we're going to try to handle some of them at the end of the show. But, Ricky, we've got quite the lineup. Mr. Beast cures the blind and prompts backlash. If that sentence confuses you, you may want to stick around. 
We'll also discuss fraud in the organic food industry. What exactly does certified organic actually mean? But first, Biden Tuesday delivered the State of the Union address to a raucous crowd of possibly drunk members of Congress. And to you, my fellow Americans, the State of the Union is strong. He sounds this note of optimism over and over that the American public survives. This is one of the best speeches that Joe Biden has delivered as president. I have considerable doubt as to whether this was a a confidence-inspiring speech tonight. It set a new standard in terms of members of Congress shouting up at the rostrum where the president stands. I've never seen a chamber like that. It was a rowdy House chamber, at times extremely contentious. He called on Congress to unite. Will that happen? (laughs) All right. Well, Ricky, this was a feisty, populist Joe Biden. It Uh, indeed was. (laughs) You sound so enthusiastic about this speech. He talked about a lot of stuff that we've been talking about on this podcast, which is why we don't always cover like the big hot story that's on cable news because that our whole mission of this podcast is to dive deeper into issues that they're ignoring. But the reason why we actually wanted to stop and talk about State of the Union is he talked about cracking down on excessive fees for things like concert tickets, which is something we talked about, ban on non-compete agreements, tougher antitrust enforcement, credit card fees. So he talked also about the deficit. So there's just a whole bunch of stuff here that he addressed that we've been talking about here. Uh, But Ricky, let's actually start with the tone of this whole thing, right? So Mm -hmm. there's one clip that's making, I think, the rounds more than anything else. And this kind of indirectly gets at something we care about in this podcast, which is civility. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's go to this clip of Biden talking about Social Security and Medicare. Some of my Republican friends want to take the economy hostage. I get it. Unless I agree to their economic plans. All of you at home should know what those plans are. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. So, folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be stopped. All right. This is an interesting moment. And also, if you're just listening on the podcast, you're not... Um given the treat of seeing Marjorie Taylor Greene's like kind of bizarro fur collar. Velociraptor was my favorite. Is, yeah. And also comparing um, her to the cinema. Jurassic Park. I'm, yeah. I don't know who is dressing some of the um, congressmen this time around, but um, I, I mean, this is pretty unceremonious, um, pretty awful to see the state of the union devolve into a little screaming match. Um, but to give him some credit, um, Kevin McCarthy did applaud 40 times and like, wasn't totally a jerk about sitting in the, in the background behind Biden. He was shushing his own side often, apparently four times he mouthed the word no to them as though they were children, which I mean, I don't even know what else he can possibly do at this point. Um, It's pretty unceremonious, uh, not the best look. Mitt Romney responded to these allegations, though, about sunsetting Medicare, which I think is important to respond to. No Republican wants to get rid of Medicare and Social Security of the elected Republicans that I know of, certainly on the Senate. And uh, no one's proposing lowering the benefits. Um, that was just uh, plain and simple wrong. And I think he, you could probably tell he had to backtrack as he, uh, as he raised that topic and saw such a chorus of response. So 
I want to give Romney credit first of all. I thought his response as a whole was very measured. It's almost like a mm-hmm. video out of West Wing from like a different era where he praises the president both personally and then talks about the things he agrees with and then talks about the things he disagrees with. I think it's a, a style of politics that you don't see very often. Interestingly, yeah. shout out to our listeners in Utah. It's it's the kind of thing that seems to be more prevalent in Utah than anywhere else. If you remember, this is a state where the governor cut an ad with his Democratic opponent while they were running against each other, uh, you know, basically talking mm-hmm. about how they're trying to elevate the politics of the state. So I give him credit for that. Although he's he's right that a lot of Republicans don't sign on to this bill, but Biden wasn't technically wrong. Senator Rick Scott had an 11 point plan to rescue America, which suggested that we sunset all federal legislation every five years. And if a law is worth keeping, Congress can pass it again. That plan is still on his website. And he's not just any senator. When he came out with that plan, he was the head of the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee. So it's he like, also has, has distanced himself from that. And I think that, you know, it's that's not a targeted um, Social Security situation here. I do think that they were right to take exception to the characterization that this is in any way some sort of mainstream thing in the um, Republican world. I mean, I'm all for sunsetting as many laws as possible personally, but, you know, I'm also <laughs> not an elected member of Congress. So, um, but the heckling and it's, it's, it's a pretty bad look, especially as Biden is saying that they've quote proved the cynics and naysayers wrong that Democrats and Republicans can work together and that, you know, there's been, there's been a lot of bipartisan movement and progress. He pointed to the infrastructure law, um, helping veterans who were exposed to toxic burn pits, um, and the marriage equality act recently. But I would say I'm, I wish that there was more of a, another quote from him, not we'll see each other as not as enemies, but as fellow Americans. And there really is on the ground. I don't really look at this current iteration of Congress and think this is a particularly united one, um, mm-hmm. which was part of Biden's campaign promise. But, you know, I think there, there are a lot of platitudes. I'll, at least they're in there. Um, but by and large, I'm not so impressed with the display of unity personally. Right. Well, you know, one more thing about that clip that we just saw before we move off of it is the context is this debt ceiling fight that we've talked about a little bit on this podcast. But Biden did a really smart thing at the end of that clip where he was he was basically going back and forth over this Rick Scott proposal. And then at the end, he's like, well, OK, then Social Security and Medicare is off the table, something that we talked about a few podcasts ago. Actually, we think it should be on the table, to be clear, <laughs> yeah. not in the ways. What's interesting, is he's mixing two things. One is like cutting an entire program versus reforming it. And yeah. he, he basically was able to get everybody to like verbally confirm that they're not going to not everybody, but the people in that chamber by and large to verbally confirm that it's not on the table for discussion, which I thought was a, an interesting rhetorical move. But yeah, he was big on the bipartisanship and bipartisan language. He said, speaker, I don't want to ruin your reputation, but I look forward to working with you, which got a lot of applause. And he congratulated McCarthy and taking over the job. He talks about working together. He talked about like all the legislation they worked together on the infrastructure law, legislation uh, helping veterans with the the burn pits, uh, marriage equality. So like, yeah, like these are real things, right? Like mm-hmm. that they got done. I was surprised actually to hear about some of the things that you're mentioning, like as he was saying them out loud, because I remember each individual one, when he put them all together, I was like, oh, actually this was more bipartisan over the past few years than I remember. 
Yeah, I suppose. I don't know. I wouldn't say the optics look so um, bipartisan, to be honest. But he did also delve into quite a wide array of social issues. Um, He invited Tyree Nichols' parents, um, mother and stepfather, to the address. And at one point, he addressed them directly. And he went on to talk more broadly about police reform and the issues around policing. I know most cops and their families are good, decent, honorable people, the vast majority. But they risk. And they risk their lives every time they put that shield on. But what happened to Tyree in Memphis happens too often. We have to do better. Give law enforcement the real training they need. Hold them to higher standards. Help them succeed in keeping us safe. So, Ricky, I think this was a a really important moment because I think Americans' heads are spinning. I know a lot of our audience, their heads are spinning. You know, issue we've talked a lot about is policing on this podcast. And I think most Americans, when they hear the platitudes that are thrown around in our politics around policing, whether it's back the blue or defund the police, most people have way more complex views of police than Mm -hmm. those two slogans. And I think Biden, when he sort of gets concrete about it, which says, look, like a lot of people, police are your neighbors, you know, a lot of people, and there's polling across demographics to say most people want more police in their community. They just want better policing. And that was a sentiment that would, that as he expressed it, got clear bipartisan support yeah. in that chamber. And I thought yep. that was a really powerful moment because it cuts through the kind of bullshit that's been um, tolerated on these issues over the past few years. And he, I think he did a good job of not simplifying the issue. Yeah, I agree. I, I think he threaded the needle pretty well here. And um, it's it's not so typical to hear such a, a glowing um, like reflection of police first before we get into these conversations about police abuse and police reform. And so I found that refreshing for those who are just listening. There's a bipartisan standing ovation for the way that he addressed this issue here, which was certainly unique. Another social issue that I think um, he handled well was um, overdose deaths and cracking down on fentanyl. He nodded to the fact that 70,000 Americans a year die Um, As a result of these drugs, he advocated for more inspections at the border, more inspections with um, packages coming into the country. And so that's yet another bipartisan issue. He was heckled during that point. (laughs) That was interesting. There was like some bipartisan support and then he was heckled at times over that one, too. I think by and large, though, that's an issue that everyone can um, sort of find some common ground on. And that touches the lives of countless Americans, regardless of their political party. And so um, refreshing to hear that actually being responded to and and validated in this setting. Right. You know, there's this unspoken thing that I think is that people aren't, we haven't, I don't think he's been able to basically talk about publicly, which is there's all this attention on Hunter Biden. And one of the the lingering allegations uh, involving Hunter Biden is, is involves substance abuse. And I think if this were a healthy political culture, we would he would be talking about how that's a struggle in the way that he talks about cancer, for example, and his other son um, is so personal to him. But for obvious reasons, he's not really able to talk about that concretely. It was just something that was on my mind as that subject. Well, I also came. don't know that that's necessarily like because there's some evil partisanship. I do think that there's he probably has a vested interest in drawing as little attention to 
the potential corruption allegations there as possible. Yeah, I was interested. I have a lot to say about what you just said, but I don't want to derail us. But it was interesting that we had a hearing yesterday on Twitter, which kind of fell flat. But maybe we'll talk about that next week, because I do think that this this big Hunter Biden moment that was supposed to happen in this oversight hearing didn't happen. But I don't want to gloat on that. Let's talk about the economy. Um, The Biden, I thought, was populist, which not always is my strain of politics. He was protectionist. He had a balance of taking credit for uh, the economy improving as he was trying to tell a story and trying not to sound too out of touch. And he, I think, rather carefully presented data, and we'll go through some of it, to paint a, a positive picture of the economy. And I think he, he, you you might have found moments where he he might have been inaccurate. I didn't find too many moments where he was inaccurate. I just think there were moments where he was leaving out critical context. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, one thing he talked about is the unemployment rate had fallen to a 3.44%, a 50-year low. Um, he basically brushed off blame for inflation. Um, he pointed to the creation of 800,000 manufacturing jobs, which he talked about as the fastest growth in manufacturing in 40 years. He talked about a record 12 million new jobs. Uh, and this is where we can get to some of the fact-checking here. He talked about 12 million new jobs created, more jobs created in two years than any president has ever created. And important to note that though that is technically accurate, the obvious lingering story here was COVID. So he basically mm-hmm. got a lot of the people going back to work after COVID, which he could, we could, one could argue about how much credit he deserves for that obviously that context is important, but also the job market is bigger than it than it's ever been before because our country is growing in population by and large. So as a percentage, though, he hasn't had the largest increase in employment. That would be in recent years. Reagan and Clinton both had larger increases in employment during equivalent times, if we count it as a percentage. But you know, this is probably less about the accuracy of that number exactly and him just trying to be able to tell a story of an economy mm-hmm. on the rebound and him being responsible for it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a lot more about spin and certainly when you inherit an economy in shambles after a pandemic, there's always going to be something to take credit for. But certainly the job gains as a percentage of, of the workforce is not as impressive as he might be touting. Um, he also went on to blame uh, the debt essentially on Trump, um, pointing to the fact that 25% of our national debt occurred and was accrued during his administration. Um, It's important to note that a lot of that is from mandatory spending from programs like Social Security and Medicare. And Romney also had some things to say about these claims. He also decided to talk about the, uh, the deficit in a way that I thought was a bit disingenuous. He said he's brought the deficit down. And if you look at the math, why, in fact, it's come down. But what he ignored was The reason the deficit was so big before he came into office was we had an emergency plan as a result of COVID. And so money was being spent to help families, hospitals, airlines, businesses, small and large. And we spent a lot of money, trillions of dollars, trying to maintain the American economy. And yeah, that emergency is over, so we're not able to spend that money anymore. And for him to say that somehow he's fought to reduce the deficit, uh, is, uh, is this kind of uh, an exaggeration? Let's put it that way. Um, I wish he'd have spent some time talking about the deficit, however, and the debt that our nation has. I mean, as is the inclination of my Democrat friends, they typically rehearse a whole series of things they want to spend money on. 
Yeah, I, I this is another area where I agree with some of what he's saying, which is that something we've talked about a lot on this podcast is Democrats' propensity to propose a lot of things that they don't want to say how they're going to pay for. I do think, though, it's worth noting that Romney ran against Obama and in part hit him on spending and the deficit, where Obama was responding to the Great Recession in very much some of the same ways that he's talking about the COVID pandemic. Like, you know, we expanded government in order to respond to this crisis. And I don't seem to remember Romney giving Obama a pass on that. And so I don't think we should give Trump a pass on that, especially when he passed tax cuts while he was expanding the scope of government and wasn't cutting government in any equivalent way to make up for the shortfalls in revenue. And so he was running up a deficit. And, you know, there are studies on this. For for reasons that are kind of baffling, Republican presidents tend to preside over greater increases in the deficit. And this is not specific to the COVID pandemic. If you remember Bush, he passed tax cuts while he was expanding the scope of major, major federal programs at the same time. So this is like a attack, which frustrates me about Republicans who should be better uh, fiscally, who want to take credit for tax cuts, but don't want to cut government programs in any equivalent way. And so, like, I appreciate his tone, but he just doesn't have the credibility with me on this issue, nor does his party. It's the case for more libertarian Republicans, which I'm I'm on board for. Let's cut the taxes and cut the programs, too. Well, let's talk about Mr. Beast. Uh, he is the most successful YouTuber of all time. He has 132 million followers. He got in some hot water recently over a video uh, where he's curing blindness. We're going to get to that. But before we, okay. like, and that's why we're talking about him. A lot of our audience members might not know who Mr. Beast was. I was vaguely aware of who this guy was, and now I've gone down this rabbit hole. He's he's this guy on YouTube, and I'm going to play you a clip, Ricky. This is a clip. He has these videos, among other things, where he brings people into big box stores, like a Best mm-hmm. Buy, even a John Deere, and then he has these these like competitions for people where he'll like either put a um, he'll put a uh, like a tape on the ground, like you know, over, like a like a couple feet by a couple feet, and he'll be like, whatever you could fit in this like box, you could take home with you. Uh, but you mm-hmm. can't have anything touch the tape. And if it touches the tape, you get nothing. So he'll come up with all these types of competitions. Let me play you a video of this because it's, it's truly riveting stuff. This is $1 million in cash. And I'm going to give random people one minute to try to spend all this money. Carl, start the timer. You guys have 60 seconds. Whatever you put in this cart, I will pay for up to $1 million. So yeah, he <laughs> he does that. He had one where this guy brought his father and his elderly father into a John Deere and they had one minute and anything they touched, they could take home with them to the point where the son, I but the, the father had to touch it. So the son then goes into the parking lot within one minute and drives a John Deere tractor up to the door. I think it's like a $100,000 tractor, some huge piece of machinery. And the father goes and touches it with one second remaining. I mean, uh-huh. I, I've lost a lot of my life watching these videos over the last 48 hours. Yeah, I'm just, I have no, I have no idea who this guy was until today when we were doing this segment. But I mean, the amount of human life that has been spent watching this, and I'm sure with a lot of young people is just very depressing to me. I, I don't know how he's flown under my radar because apparently this, like there are just zombies who are consuming his content 24 seven. Oh, stop he has it. Don't, don't, don't No, I mean, I can't believe that this guy is as successful as he is, but like this, I'm not insulting his audience. It's just, you know, that's quite a lot. 
Um, the zombies. 132 million yeah, followers. The zombies. <laughs> They're good zombies, is what you meant. The, yeah. First for an individual. 132 by the million way. followers. He earned 54 million dollars in 2021 alone. He's worth north of 500 million dollars. He's higher paid than Billie Eilish or Kim Kardashian. Like, I don't understand how this guy has just hacked like people's brains and i don't know wow i'll explain let me explain first of all and let me correct something he's first youtube uh, he has that highest youtube audience for a person i think he's fourth for any subscribed channel but okay. I, in watching this stuff he's very much in an american tradition there is this show before your time called supermarket sweep where people would go into a supermarket and it would be two different teams or sometimes multiple different teams and you would have a certain amount of time to fill up your cart and get it across the line and over time you started to learn all right do you take the stakes do you take these other things and like that's kind of what's going on here there's a video where mm -hmm. this guy just really smartly loaded up on uh, he had one minute to go into the best buy and, and put everything in the cart and he loaded up on these uh, gift cards and had like $13,000 of gift cards in just five seconds. Um, and so when you're watching this, it's really incredible to watch. Uh, it's riveting stuff. But what really got him in hot water recently, and, and this is uh, worthy of some d discussion here, is that he uh, has these videos now that are up to, I think, 96 million views of the last time um, we saw it where he uh, is you know, working with physicians to cure a certain kind of blindness. Um, and so I think it was a thousand blind people um, and he was arranging for people to get sight restoring cataract surgery. And he was filming the patient's reactions to seeing clearly after getting the surgery. In this video, we're curing a thousand people's blindness. <laughs> it's gonna be crazy. They can't see but we have all the technology to fix it. Yep, half of all the blindness in the world is people who need a 10 minute surgery. Crazy. Yeah. Oh my okay. God. I okay. see everybody. Oh, I can see clear. <laughs> I can jump for joy. <laughs> and Ricky, it seems like some parts of the internet did not have a good reaction to this. Some of the optics are a little bit um, out of touch, I think to say the least, like he tweeted after he made this video, I don't understand why curable blindness is a thing. Why don't government step in and help? And just sort of general, like, it, I like this idea of I'm going to waltz in and cure blindness. I get why people are a little bit allergic to that. It's very sensationalized and his, his um, little thumbnail is very, like everything is very, poppy and flashy and this is actually a really serious issue and I you know following people around with a camera when they're getting a, a, a life-changing surgery there's there are questions there but then again he is paying for a up to $14,000 surgery for these people who might not otherwise be able to afford it and is donating money as well to the doctor so that he can continue to um, do these surgeries for people in need beyond just this video but i yeah. i mean i'm kind of i'm not it's not making my blood boil but, but i understand that the optics are perhaps not as graceful as they could have been but to me i don't care about the optics like to me i care about yeah. the outcomes and if you're if you were blind and now you're not you don't care about why he did it you don't care about the optics yeah you just care that you can see 
And to me, there are people who are who are going after him. There was, you know, a Twitter user who said, "quote There's something so demonic about this, and I can't even articulate what it is." End quote. And I'm like, "Well, maybe you can't articulate it fully because maybe it's not a great argument." Like, like what are you doing sitting on Twitter, like criticizing people? Are you curing blindness? Because if you're not, then I'm going to have to put the points in Mr. Beast's column here because curing blindness is better than not curing blindness Yeah, by and large. That's that, that's my very simple moral take. And I think, yeah, he's sensationalized, but who is not? Oprah was giving out cars, right? I know no, some people true. had some reaction to that. It's like, well, like, is there a truly, there's a, there's a great book by Mike Schur, How to Be Perfect is what it's called, the guy from The Good Place, who I've done a few podcasts uh, before on a different show. And he... He, uh, and he's a Hollywood writer and all this. He wrote a book about morality and it's like, it's tongue in cheek called how to be perfect because basically he's, he's saying you can't be perfect, but you could try to be the best that you can. And he has a whole section of this book about, is there a truly moral act? Like, do you give to charity because you care about the charity or because you want to feel good for giving? And it's so hard to detach your emotions from that. And especially when you start to bring in things like religion, where it's like, all right, there's a promise of an afterlife. And am I doing something because I want to be rewarded for it or not? Mm -hmm. And I, after reading that and reflecting on this, I'm like, all right, well, there are some exceptions where the motive truly can be problematic. But in most cases, there's going to be a mixture of self-interest and... Uh, yeah. benevolence. And I think in this case, it's probably a combination of the two, which so this is a guy who's incredibly good at getting people to watch his shows. He's probably doing it in part because he knows that he can get a lot of people to watch it, but he mm-hmm. also probably does care as most people do about uh, somebody being cured of blindness and probably does have a genuinely authentic uh, desire to help people. And when those two things come together, not only does he help the people who are blind there, but I can imagine that a lot of people in his audience, when they learned about this, potentially donated to charities. Hmm. Perhaps. To put, this, to put that sentiment in his own words, quote, I genuinely enjoy helping people. It's something I've had an issue with, that I'm that much of a nice guy. I don't know why, and I'm not saying this to look good. I've just always been a really nice guy. So I don't know. You yep. can take that at, at face value if you'd like. I, I'm i not really in the camp of all this moral outrage over this specifically. I do think it's a little bit um, tone deaf and a little bit tacky just how flashy he makes this. And like, I'm curing a thousand people's blindness. Like, it's... A, bit much and it's a it's quite a clickbaity claim um there is an article in the new statesman that said uh watching donaldson's site restoring video you cannot deny the impact his donation has had on these individuals but in reality we're witnessing a millionaire exploit someone suffer someone suffering for profit which i'm not that's going too far i don't actually think he's exploiting someone's suffering it's He's solving it. He's relieving um, it. Yeah. Yeah. He's relieving <laughs> yeah. it for profit. He's relieving it for profit. But, you know, I, I mean, it is a net positive in the end. I'm not as angry about this. I, I would say, though, that like this conversation around effective altruism and and the desire to feel good, there are more egregious versions of this, in my opinion, like voluntourism, I think is just a pretty bizarre industry. Well, where... do you want to define effective altruism for us for a second? Because I think a lot of our people might not be following the debate around this issue. Do you want to define it? Because I don't have a definition Yeah, I'm going to butcher this a little bit, but and, I, and I've been in some of the waters here, swam in some of the waters of some of the people involved in this movement. But essentially, it's a movement uh, that encourages everyone who can give away as much of their wealth as possible to give it away and to try to do it in the most effective way possible. So that's the sort of effective altruism part. And and essentially what it means is um, 
and I think the controversial part of this is it actually encourages people to make a lot of money uh, and then to give it away. So mm -hmm. uh, Sam Bankman Freed was actually a mentored by this professor who encouraged him to make a lot of money and then to give it away. And Sam Bankman-Fried was actually the poster child of this movement in many ways, rather inconvenient for the movement. And we all know what happened there. We've talked about it a lot. Yeah. He, he gave away some of it. He stole a lot, probably some of the money he gave away. He also admitted so that he didn't even care about half of the stuff that he was actually doing in terms of being an activist anyways, and Twitter DMs with a journalist. So, right. yeah. Well, and so then this would be to look good. Well, and this would be when I said there are certain cases where I do care about the motive. This would be one of them because I think he was using his effective altruism and the PR around it to build up a certain profile that he was using to influence public policy. He was using to, you know, build up a public profile that allowed him to raise money, steal money potentially, allegedly. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's like a... That's a misuse, like the motive to me matters there uh, in part because the motive is then driving other pathological behavior and the good PR that surrounded him, uh, you know, kind of was a cloak that allowed him to do some bad things. But I do think like taking a step back, people are, people are attacking effective altruism as a movement and an idea because of this. And although I do think like certain people like McCaskill, who's basically like the, the, the William McCaskill, who's like the big name behind this probably should answer for his relationship with Sam Bankman. Freed, I don't think that the idea of giving away money, which Mr. Beast has claimed that he's going to give away all of his money by the time he dies. Uh, I don't think the idea of giving away money to charities and trying to do it in the most effective way possible to help as many people as possible is a bad idea because Sam Bankman Freed was a crook. Yeah. I mean, McCaskill also at one point suggested that it's worth letting a, a kid run into a fire and die to save a Picasso if that money from the Picasso will help more kids and their suffering afterwards. Okay, so this is, so he, yeah, he, he basically was saying like, he's a consequentialist, right? And a lot of these mm -hmm. effective altruists- it's utilitarianism, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they subscribe to a particular moral philosophy. And part of the reason is that William McCaskill is not really the brains behind effective altruism. There's a guy named Peter Singer, who's a uh, professor at Princeton, who is a well-known uh, utilitarian thinker, consequentialist, who has, you know, I first came to know him through the animal rights movement, and he made a, a utilitarian argument in favor of animal rights. But it, And when we think of utilitarian, we think of transactional, self-interested, all that. But he- John he, Stuart Mill, my guy. Yeah, but he, his argument on the animal rights front, which I think also informs the effect of altruism, is that the amount of pain and suffering is what we should be care we should care about when we talk about consequences and the amount of pain and suffering of sentient beings in particular uh, is enormous in the in the animal uh, you know slaughter industry and he made a consequentialist argument against uh, factory farming that actually persuaded me the first time I went vegetarian to become a vegetarian and interestingly during the pandemic he and I had a conversation and I happened to, to record it because I was going to use it for something that I wound up not using it for. And actually it's very helpful for this conversation. And basically he talks about how, uh, just gets to this Will McCaskill piece, what it means to be effective altruist actually can depend upon how you weight evidence and even how, like what you care most about. Effective altruism in itself doesn't tell us uh, what choices to make between 
giving to an effective charity that we know, for example, will save lives by distributing bed nets to protect children against malaria, uh, and giving to a political candidate who will reform policies um, and improve the economy and lift people out of poverty so that they can buy their own bed nets. Um, it it's simply tells us to look at the chances of success and uh, the extent of the success that we will achieve. So if uh, someone says we should be working through electoral politics uh, rather than giving to charities, uh, what we need to know is what are the chances that we can make a difference through electoral politics. So I think this is definitely like a more lofty conversation around what would what should billionaires do or ESG and how to be responsible at the the very top of society. But I think that one more tangible kind of example of this this tension between wanting to feel good and actually. Um, doing something effective in the end would be the growth of the voluntourism industry, I think is just really fascinating and kind of bizarre to see. And that's a more day-to-day situation that admittedly wealthier Americans would indulge in. But basically you you buy a, an expensive plane ticket and fly to some third world country to stand there while construction workers do things or to, to help. But the majority of it is the experience of, of going to a community and, and interacting with people and presumably your money going towards helping them in the end. But there was an interesting um, Vice video that I'd recommend people watch where this girl um, recalled having gone on one of these voluntourism trips to some third world country. And she woke up in the middle of the night one time and decided to go for an early morning walk and found that they were building a schoolhouse or something. And the construction work were coming early before anyone woke up to undo and then redo all the building that the volunteers had done because obviously none of them even had construction uh, experience in the past. <laughs> and so it goes to show like there, there's, there are, we will go very far to make ourselves feel good and even waste money and, and um, airline tickets in the process in order to, um, to get the desired end for ourselves out of our charity. Well, this is why I think you're an effective altruist, because that's what he's saying. It's like, look, like he's like, you're your pet projects that make you feel good. And then there are the things where we're trying to measure the impact of them. And like, yeah, no, I, I consider myself more of a utilitarian. I, yeah. I'm, I'm a John Stuart yeah. Mill girl in, in more ways than one. I consider myself a libertarian, but I, I mean, a, a utilitarian. But I, I do think that there are some examples of of effective altruism that have gone awry and certainly some people in in the donor class whose vision of a better future I disagree with. But right. yeah. thinking some Soros is here, but you know. You know, I'll leave Soros alone. You know, I, I think uh, my final point on this is we hold these people, whether it's Mr. Beast, it's McCaskill, it's Singer, I don't know about Soros. I don't know what they're giving money do these days, but the... We hold these people to this purity test that we would never apply to anything else. Because, like, if you were to say, "What are the what are the alternatives to effective altruism?" 
Like we know there are bad things like the, like the ineffective altruism or the non altruistic movement, like the straight selfish capitalism, like that obviously has its flaws too. Like, and that has led to exploitation on a massive scale that is unimpeachable. So like the question is, can we find the best philosophy? And you know, McCaskill hasn't been the greatest salesman for this, but maybe Mr. Beast will be a better salesman for this philosophy. Mm, I'm not sure about that. Should we talk about organic food? Yeah, Ricky, I had my uh, organic eggs uh, and tomatoes this morning. So you tell me, like, am I healthy? Yeah, I don't think anyone knows, and myself included. It's funny, um, like, as as much as 70% of Americans will say that their household has bought organic food in re- the recent history, and only 20% would even say that they think that they could potentially define the term. And we'll get to some definitions here. Obviously, GMO, organic, there's like a, a whole sea of different things to to distinguish here. But it's important to just note how big this industry is. As of 2021, organic yes. sales surpassed $63 billion uh, with $1.4 billion in growth from 2020. Uh, this market is expected to grow from $227 billion in 2021 to $259 billion in 2022. And so this is massive. So like what we call organic, the motivation behind it, and whether we're actually onto something or being duped is probably a really important conversation, which is why we're making a little bit of space for it on this podcast. You know, you're spending a premium in order to buy organic or non-GMO food, but most people don't really understand the implications of that. I'm certainly less suspicious of GMOs actually than of um, non-organic food personally, but just to put some um, definitions here, the label organic when it comes to produce is means that there's not pesticides or synthetic fertilizers that they're non-gmo um, when it comes to livestock they are not they're not given antibiotics they have more natural living conditions and they're fed organic feed and there is some some statistics to back up the idea that eating organic is actually better for you studies have found that they have more or uh, antioxidants but more iron vitamin C zinc um, but they also are on average 24 cents more expensive than just conventional run-of-the-mill foods. And so, you know, you're paying a premium. You are buying this kind of vague promise that this is somehow better for you. And you're expecting that these labels are actually backed up by how these foods were produced. But the truth is that is typically or often not the case. Um, The New Yorker put this very well. I think um, more than in most retail transactions, the organic consumer is buying both a thing and an assurance about the thing. So essentially, you're just kind of taking this promise at face value. There's no way to actually audit what you're buying at the grocery store. And so this is an area that's been ripe for fraud. Um, There are just 60 accredited testers to audit organic farms and 28,000 farms in this country. So this is really more of an honor system than a test. The USDA has not done a great job regulating it. And more than 40% of organics uh, products that were found in grocery stores are tested to have been treated with pesticides in the end. So you're, you're basically just buying a promise. Yeah, worth going through some of these labels, right? There's the 100% organic label, which is what it says. It's the claim, which, you know, obviously we'll underline. Organic itself, 
uh, means that any product that contains a minimum of 95% organic ingredients. And then there's made with organic, which product contains at least 70% organically produced ingredients. But that's just the claim, as you say, mm -hmm. right? It's very different in practice. And part of what happens is to become certified, a farmer would start with land that hasn't grown anything conventionally, so non-organically, for three years. And so they mm -hmm. basically transition to being or an organic farm. And as you say, like the uh, the USDA, the feds come in and every once in a while may audit these farmers, but it's usually a paperwork exercise. There's not a lot of scientific testing going on. They're going over receipts and things like that. Yeah. As is, these are not USDA officials necessarily. They're third party annual audits that these farmers are hiring themselves. And so effectively you're regulating yourself mm. is how this system has been set up. Yeah. And actually, it was, you know, one of the articles we had, you know, one of the certifiers uh, was quoted as saying, quote, we never show up like health inspectors do in a business. Um, and, you know, one of the agencies talked about, you know, how the, basically what they're doing is in less than 5% of cases, are they actually even testing physically these products for any residue? Mm -hmm. And that seems to be the sort of stick of it all, right? Like if, if we're not yeah. actually going in there and physically interacting with these goods in the way that you probably would in most other cases, like if this were like the FDA, you know, with a pharmaceutical, for example, of course, they'd be testing the purity yep. of something. So that's where I think this this goes awry. I don't know. I don't know if that's your impression, but this seems like we'd be the critical flaw in the system. Yeah, I mean, self self selecting how you're going to be regulated is certainly um, an area where you're just welcoming fraud. Um, there are some pretty crazy examples. There's this guy named Randy Constant from Missouri who um, profited 120 million dollars from false organic sales just since 2010, and he was doing a bunch of very questionable pro uh, practices here, including like just fertilizing the middle of his, um, the middle of his crop so that if somebody were to come and expect his field, then they would say, Oh, like all these, all these corn and soybeans are not being treated with fertilizer because they're not like going down into the middle. They just left the edges untreated. And just to give you a sense of the scale, even though this is a relatively small portion of the organic market. At one point in time, he was producing 7% of the organic corn and 8% of the organic soybeans. So just one guy mm. who managed to um, swindle people out of more than $100 million. Um, so the USDA has rightfully announced some new regulations here, I think, um, including requiring complete audits, um, making these these fruits and, and products more traceable, requiring better record keeping, um, inspecting without announcing themselves as much as 5% of farms and um, making sure that their uh, inspectors are actually better trained and associated with the USDA in a more direct way. So I think these are certainly um, necessary reforms considering that uh, people are completely ignorant to the fact that they're just buying a story about the food that they're eating and not actually an improved product in in many instances. Well, yeah, and we spoke to uh, this law professor at George Mason named Balin Lenikin, and he's written a lot about this issue writ large. And essentially what he says is absent any major reform, and we'll get to what he actually proposes doing, but absent any major reform, that the fraud that you talked about is gonna be inevitable. The USDA took over organics and basically turned it into a way for large companies to get food that met the USDA's definition of organics to more consumers. 
And that's fine. Again, you know, nothing, I, the fact that more people want to eat organic doesn't, um, you know, there's no downside to that um, other than the price that they can't afford it. But, you know, the USDA has watered things down to the point where fraud is an inevitability, you know, with the price incentive uh, that you get. So more lawsuits, you know, better certifying, uh, monitoring, and frankly, just getting the USDA and their their definitions of uh, organics out of the way, I think would be a very useful uh, process. Yeah. So, I mean, essentially like he's arguing for like very limited federal involvement and for these non-government actors to step in and start certifying these products, which Mm -hmm. is fascinating. Like, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Obviously right now it feels like the government's wasting a lot of people's time and misleading people about these products. Yeah. I mean, certainly no matter what your proposed regulation is at the end, whether it's private or public, this is a case for just wasteful government spending. I mean, I, if anything, I'm less outraged about the farmers that were kind of gaming the system and more outraged about the fact that the USDA is going to get $302 billion for 2023 alone. And if they're not just doing the very basics of making sure that they haven't created a system where obviously things are slipping through the cracks and there are high profile public cases like this guy, Randy Constant, that made headlines that, you know, it's not a secret that people are gaming this system. And I'm not sure what that money is for, if not to protect consumers and to make sure that we actually have an idea that the food that we're consuming is healthy and as promised. I mean, I don't, that's, that's a shocking oversight. The fact that we waited this long, considering that it's not like we just decided organic food existed yesterday. Like this mm-hmm. has been a growing industry and continues to um, subsume a larger and larger share of the produce that's purchased in this country. Right. You know, th- this whole sort of industry, you know, basically comes about starting in 1979 when California becomes the first state to start recognizing organics from a governmental perspective. And so, so it's, uh, depending on where you set the clock, this is relatively new or relatively old industry. <clears throat> from a practical concern, people are listening like, well, what do I do about this? I can only tell you what my reading of all this is, which is the GMO stuff I feel like is totally overblown. Like I, I don't agree. think there's much evidence that GMO, non-GMO, like in some cases I'm like I probably want more GMO food. But the 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 thing that seems to stand out here that seems to be credible is the use of pesticides and like the amount of pesticides in your food really does matter. And that is unhealthy. And the most practical thing you could do is just make yourself aware of what foods contain the most pesticides where you're most at risk. And that's where you want to be the most careful about both like, you know, how much you wash your food, but where you get it and being extra careful of the sourcing of those. And there's this group called the Environmental Working Group that produces an annual assessment of the 12 fruits and vegetables containing the highest levels of pesticides, which they call the dirty dozen, and the 15 that contain the lowest amount, which they call the clean 15. And we'll link to that in the show notes. Just read Mm -hmm. that and you'll see that, for instance, you should probably care more about where you get your strawberries and apples and grapes from than your avocados and your onions. So... Take a yeah. look at that. And I find that very practical because like at the end of the day, you just want to be safe. You want your kids to be safe. You don't want to put chemicals in your body that aren't meant to be in your body. And I find that to be the most helpful piece of information here. Yeah. And one last note on that front is if you're eating the skin of the fruit or vegetable and you're eating like you're 
literally consuming the outer layer that would have direct contact with fertilizer throughout the that per, a piece of produce's entire development that is also higher stakes in terms of the potential uh, pesticide exposure that you might get. Well, Ricky, I think uh, as we close out, maybe we'll listen to a couple voicemails. Let's do it. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. Hey, Ricky and Robbie. Um, I wanted to comment on the, the rent control episode. I think one thing that Robbie said that inventory is our biggest problem. I want to unpack that a little bit but with two examples. One is Cape Cod, where I'm from, and my family still lives, where the development of Cape Cod is actually pretty much at its maximum. You see news stories where sewage is overflowing into bodies of water and, and the developed land is pretty much at its peak, and yet people can't afford to live there who are seasonal workers, who are wage workers. There's a huge labor crisis on Cape Cod that is essentially just based on housing. So a, there's a lot of inventory, but it's not accessible to those people. And then the other is Brooklyn, New York, where I've been living here for 10 years and seen massive increases in inventory in the luxury market, but really exclusively in the luxury market where these high-rise apartment buildings go up with all sorts of amenities. They're cheaply made, um, and the rents are far higher than market rate, which drives up the market rate. So I think when we talk about inventory, are we talking about affordable inventory? And if so, what are the different strategies to actually put that into place in a way that doesn't prohibit development? We'll link in the show notes to this piece uh, from this Finnish economist. There's actually a write-up in this blog. Uh, there's a 2020 study from these Finnish economists who looked at the, the effect of luxury housing on the downstream market and this full-stack economics uh, blog slash newsletter basically unpacks that research, so we'll put it in there. My reading of it is that, uh, and I we I actually talked to uh, Benjamin Applebaum about this on the Sunday Regressives episode that's coming out, that actually the luxury market does help the downstream market. And that's what the Finnish economists look like is what I talk about with Applebaum. So there's that. But obviously, you want your development to have infrastructure so you can't outpace the infrastructure. So obviously, there are certain places that just simply cannot sustain, and Cape Cod could be one of them, sustain more development because they don't have proper sewage, et cetera. So I definitely would want to have that caveat. Yeah, I'm certainly not an expert in like the zoning laws and Cape Cod, or I know that it's like certainly less densely populated. So that might be um, somehow to do with this. But I would say that generally also making sure that there are not prohibitive zoning laws and and property laws, because if there is a, a market for affordable or more affordable housing options in an area, I think it's certainly not true that that developers would ignore that if there was a, an easier way to access and tap into that market. So I think making sure that that building code is not excessively prohibitive to creating those less expensive projects that are more affordable, that's that's certainly a starting point. All right, one more voicemail. I think, Ricky, this is for our segment on birth control. Hi, I'm calling about the segment on birth control. First of all, it was great reporting. And um, I wanted to call and tell you about my own experience in part because I think there's an, there's an education piece here missing. 
Uh, I'm not a Gen Z, but I'm a millennial. Um, I had an IUD, the hormonal IUD, for I think it was four years for long-term birth control. And eventually I got to where I, I couldn't take the side effects, you know, discomfort, low libido, uh, all the same side effects that, that were listed um, in your piece, Ricky. Um, and so I started exploring different options, and I found this book called Taking Charge of Your Fertility, which is not a new book. It's an old book. It's been around for a while. And uh, reading that book, it explains women's cycles and hormones and physiology and biology, and you start to feel like, well, why were we never taught this? Why were we never taught that you can only get pregnant a certain uh, few days a month? And why are we the ones who have to take hormonal birth control when men can get multiple women pregnant multiple times a day? They're fertile every single day. Um, we're the ones who have a shorter window and we're the ones who are, who are disrupting our hormones. Um, but essentially there's so much information that, that women aren't given. My, my experience with sex education was you can get pregnant at any day, at any time. Uh, and you can get pregnant days after you've um, had sex. I was a product of abstinence uh, education down in Texas. But um, there's there's an education piece here missing where women are not taught about their own bodies. They're not given the tools to um, manage their own fertility and, and reproductive destiny. And it's a really sad situation that you're kind of faced with, you know, disrupt your hormones or risk um, pregnancy when there is information out there to help to help women and um, you know it's not always that you have to go on to a hormonal birth control um, and so I think there, there's a disservice being done to especially young women about you know don't worry the only thing you need to know is, is periods are painful and and um, you can get pregnant any day and it's always a risk and here just take this pill and 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 be quiet. So um, those are my thoughts. Thanks for all that you do. Love the show. Yeah, this totally resonates with me. I mean, I'm the product of progressive Northeastern sex education. So totally different vantage point from her, except that I was not really taught about the nuances between hormonal birth control methods and the and the side effects and how there are more options. There's the copper IUD. There are non-hormonal methods that women can choose to make. I also think that like natural cycle family planning is totally demonized. I, I noted in my piece that two of the women that I spoke to um, chose to go down that route, but also both are married. I think that's obviously um, a, a different and important nuance because the consequences of that going awry is obviously um, pretty high stakes, but by and large, I, I completely agree that there's not enough conversation about like the, the female body is a very predictable and scientific cycle that it goes through every month. And, um, I think at least teaching women that there are more alternatives beyond just take the pill and, and shut up, which I think is kind of what my generation was told. Um, certainly we should err towards, uh, uh, educating women. So I will look into that book. I've not heard of it before. Yeah. And I just want to acknowledge what she said about men not caring enough for the burden of this conversation. And obviously we don't have enough time to go into this, but there's a whole like 
discussion now around vasectomies and like that plus like the birth control writ large conversation and R&D budgets around this kind of stuff needs to shift. Yeah. And, and it, it, hopefully it's starting to shift. Like I do have know. to say, though, I, I have a little bit of a different stance on that personally, because like as somebody who could get pregnant, I would never want to depend on someone else to be responsible and making sure that they were actually taking a, a pill at the right time or like obviously mistakes are made and uh, for someone that would have to bear the burden I would rather take that into my own hands but it goes personally. both ways right like a lot of men yeah, can no, feel absolutely. the same way and be like absolutely. hey like you know it's it's both a sense of responsibility and insurance right yeah. so you're like all right totally. like I want to do my part but I also want to um cover my ass <laughs> yeah so no, fair enough that's true uh, all right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Once again, uh, we have this interview with Desmond Mead, uh, a personal hero of mine. He's on The Hardest Step Show. Go to The Hardest Step wherever you get your podcasts. It's our episode two of one of our newest podcasts on The Lost Debate. Listen in on Sunday for a fascinating conversation with The New York Times' uh, Benjamin Applebaum about housing supply. And please keep sending in those voicemails, 321-200-0570. Thank you very much, everybody. We will be back in a few days. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Julia Waldman. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Dean Metherell. 